Before we dive into the episode, I want to tell you about this awesome new partnership that I have with Tzatziki's Mediterranean Cafe that is for you specifically, my podcast listeners. Everyone is looking to get in shape, stay in shape, lose weight, or get more toned at the beginning of the year, and there's not always the healthiest food options for you to have when you're on the go or you just don't have time to cook. But there is Tzatziki's. Why is Tzatziki's one of my favorites? It's because of what they stand for. They've made the source of their food and their ingredients one of their highest priorities because they understand that the quality of their products directly impacts the customer dining experience. Their standards are high and they've worked hard to find farmers and producers whose values align with theirs. This includes using grass-fed beef, humanely raised lamb, and high-quality imported ingredients from Greece. I still remember the first time that I had tzatziki's two years ago. I had never been before because I didn't even really know what Mediterranean food was and then I had it and I was literally blown away. Like I couldn't I couldn't believe how good it was. It tasted like it was fresh out of the kitchen and it had so much flavor. So I want you to enjoy Tzatziki's too. From now until March 28th, Tzatziki's is offering the listeners of the Best You Podcast 15% off with the code BESTYOU. This offer is only available to those who live in the Nashville area and this code is only available for online orders or orders through the Tzatziki's app. Again, from now until March 28th, use the code BESTYOU to get 15% off. Quality of food is literally the number one thing that you need to focus on in order to get closer to your health and fitness goals, and Tzatziki's is the epitome of quality. My favorite meal is the grilled chicken pesto hero, so go take advantage of this offer before it's too late. Again, use the code BESTYOU to get 15% off. When he first knew that he wanted to be a sports broadcaster, why he made the controversial decision to jump over to ESPN back in 1986 what the early days of college game day were like, the importance of being in the present moment, the importance of preparation, and why reframing fear is one of the things that successful people do, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 274 with ESPN broadcaster and former host of College Game Day, Chris Fowler. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm here because you want to become the best version of yourself, but there are so many things that you need to do in order to get here. Because it's overwhelmingly complicated, it's easy to lose focus, easy to lose a sense of direction, which is why so many people fall short of their true potential. That's why I create videos, podcasts, and fitness programs to keep you on track to your best you. Go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. Today, I could not be more thrilled to bring you the one and only Chris Fowler. Now, if you know anything about college football, you probably know who Chris is. And if you don't, Chris is a broadcaster for ESPN, best known for hosting College Game Day for 25 years. And now he's a play-by-play announcer for ABC's Saturday Night Football, and he also calls tennis, including the Wimbledon and Australian Open and soccer, including the World Cup back when it was in South Africa. In this episode, we talk about his early days as a broadcaster and what the original vision for College Game Day was. We talked about what preparation looks like for him before a big game or before a big match, We talk about the importance of being in the present moment, about self-awareness, and about how he handled some of the most emotional college game day shows, and so much more. Before diving into this episode, make sure you're following me on Instagram at carrier underscore best you, and make sure you're following Chris at Chris Fowler, and go check out his awesome podcast. It's so good. It's called Fowler Who You Got. It's an awesome podcast with some amazing guests like Kirk Herbstreet, Matthew McConaughey, and so many more, and you can find all of that stuff at nickcarrier.com slash podcast and you can find it in the show notes. But without further ado, here's to getting closer to your best you with the one and only Chris Fowler. (laughs) 
All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. To say I'm fired up would definitely be an understatement today, but today I'm super fired up, super stoked to have the one and only Chris Fowler join me today. Chris, I just want to start off by saying thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. You're bringing the energy. I'll, I'll do my best to, to match it. Good to be with <laughs> of you. Of course, of course. Yeah, I already taught a, a fitness class this morning, so I'm, I'm up and, and, and ready to go and everything like that. So if you guys know anything about college football, then you know who Chris Fowler is. Um, but to give you a, a, a brief introduction, you're a broadcaster for ESPN, best known for hosting college game day for 25 years, and now you're the play-by-play announcer for ABC's Saturday Night Football Game uh, with Kirk Herbstreet. You also call tennis, you also call soccer, and you've been uh, calling the Australian Open at some crazy hours here this this past week or so, but you also have an awesome, uh, pretty new podcast called Fowler Who You Got, and, and I've been listening to it a lot. I've loved the episodes with uh, Kirk and the Bear and... Uh, with McConaughey, that one was awesome, and I just was recently listening to the Wellness Wisdom with Desmond and Gabby, and so there was some great podcasts to get listened to, to listen to. So you guys need to make sure you go check that out. But the way I want to start today, Chris, is that you went to University of Colorado, like I already told you, my dad and my brother went there as well, and you were a sports director for the university radio station, and it seemed like pretty early on, you know, you were doing some sports stuff. So when did you really know that you wanted to become a sports broadcaster? Is way before college, actually. It was when I was about 10, 11 years old. Uh, my parents were not sports fans. They were they were in the arts. They didn't have um, much interest in sports except for the Olympics. We watched that as a family. But my grandmother was a huge sports fan. So I would get dropped off sometimes on the weekends at my grandparents' place. And this was in Illinois, outside of Chicago. So she would listen to the Cubs games on a little transistor radio in a folding chair in her backyard with a baseball scorebook. Now, only listeners of a certain age are going to know what a baseball scorebook is, let alone how to use it. She scored every game in the scorebook, listened to it on the radio. Um, when it came to be hockey season, I was locked in the Chicago Blackhawks games. And I just thought, what could be better than conveying the excitement of that kind of sporting event to other people who were listening who were just as excited? Because I was in that listener position. And, and so I figured out, really early on that that would be a dream job and just kind of pointed towards it. And by the time I got to college, I was all in and my college experience was much more about accumulating practical knowledge and making connections than it was about going to class. (laughs) But that's just me. I don't advise skipping as many classes as I did, but uh, yeah, I mean, see, it was a good experience. And the radio station there was by the way, like a, it was like a little room, pretty crude. We didn't, we didn't have the facilities that, that broadcast schools have now. But if you were inventive and scrappy, you could still get the practical knowledge to, to sort of try to prepare yourself for the career. And, and that's what I did. I took every opportunity in college, including a sports talk show on that radio station you mentioned, and also a music ship, because I love music as much as sports. Since I was playing, you know, the 80s, kind of new wave of the time. And I had a great time. I mean, we, it, it was, it was made way more important to me than what I was learning in the classroom. Yeah. I, I can relate a little bit to the, going back to the baseball uh, book because back when my brother, I have an older brother, like two years older than me. And back when he was playing and started at like eight, nine, 10 years old, like getting actually more serious into it, I, I uh, chose to be and volunteered to be the bat boy for his team. And one of the things I also did was uh, keep, the, keep the book. And I thought that was 
uh, a ton of fun. So I'm I'm, I'm pretty young, but I, I can relate could to you that. Still, could you do it today? Could you still score a baseball game correctly if you had to? I'm not sure I could still do it. It's been, you know, it's been probably 40 years since I've seen a baseball score. But, but. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I, I feel like I could. I, I minimally, but probably not to its its fullest extent. Some people who are baseball announcers still keep the, uh, if they're old enough, still keep that kind of baseball scorebook. They they'll score the game as they call it because that's a good shorthand way for them to look back what happened in the third inning. You know, that's not many younger guys do that, but uh, mm-hmm. the old timers, there's still a few that do that. Yeah. So you you said when you were. You got into sports a little bit more because your grandparents were big into it. Did you see somebody calling sports and and you were like that that really seems cool? Or did you like love playing sports yourself? Or like what was it about like broadcasting in particular? Like, did you have a role model that you looked up to? Well, there were guys that called the Chicago sports teams on the radio. Uh, Jack Brickhouse mm-hmm. was the name of the uh, Cubs broadcaster at the time, pre Harry Carey. Um, there was a guy called Lloyd Pettit who called the Chicago Blackhawks games. Blackhawks were a very good team, and they were always sort of like flirting with the Stanley Cup finals. So it was very exciting. The Cubs were not so good. One of my earliest memories is 1969 when they choked the lead in the Mets, the Miracle Mets, as they became known as, uh, chased the Cubs down in the home stretch and passed them. That was a crushing, crushing defeat for a seven-year-old. You learned early what being a Cubs fan was about. But but those two guys that, that called the radio for those two teams – my, my first sort of role models, I, I didn't really listen and say, I want to take their style. I just thought, wow, those guys are really passionate and they're really pumped up and they're having a great time doing this job. And as you would, as you would tell people, you find something you're passionate about, figure out a way to make a living doing it. And I, I just found a passion for that really young. Now, when I started watching television, and looking at sports there, there were people like Jim McKay, who was at the original host of the Olympics for ABC and brought such a humanity to it and was was such a, uh, a wonderful host, not just in the mechanics of delivering information, but the way he did it, giving you a feel of being there, giving you a feel for these athletes from all different countries as human beings who are living their dream and bringing that home. The storytelling aspect of what Jim McKay did made a huge impression on me, made me think that hosting the Olympics was the ultimate job. That very mm-hmm. few things I that from an early age, I said, that's what I want to do. But hosting the Olympics was one of them. It's a goal. I've still since had to put on the sidelines. But and I got to work later with Jim McKay in horse racing uh, for ABC, uh, sort of in the latter years of his career, which is an enormous thrill for me. But. But it wasn't like I, I saw all these guys on the TV and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be like that, and this and this. I mean, there were, there, there were the main voices of the day. Kurt Gowdy would do the big TV games. Pat Summerall you know, would call the U.S. Open and, uh, and football games, of course. But it wasn't like uh, one of those guys made me want to do the, the, the job. It was more just the general feeling of what, what that must feel like to do the job. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. And hopefully uh, with the Olympics, we get back on track here uh, when things start to open back up. But one of the things I learned, so you were kind of working for CBS and NBC affiliates back in in Colorado from about 84 to 86. And 86 is when you made the jump over to ESPN and you were going to start off being the host for Scholastic Sports America, which is kind of a high school sports show. But when, when you made the jump, I learned that you kind of got advice that that might be a risky and unconventional move. 
and, and that it might be smarter just to stick at a, a local station and kind of work your way up. So what gave you the courage or the belief or the faith that making this jump to ESPN was the appropriate move for you? Yeah, I didn't feel like courage at the time, that's for sure. It was more just listening to my gut and clearing away the static and not heeding the advice of well-intentioned people, people who thought they were doing what's best for me, but just what felt right at the time. I mean, ESPN, I remember, was seven years old, okay? It had not established yes. itself as the worldwide leader in sports. Yeah. And it was this cable outfit that I had watched as a college kid, for sure, a lot, but didn't have the same profile in the, in the business. So I got this call when I was working in, in Denver as kind of like a cub reporter and a producer. I would edit highlights, but I was going to do stories in the field as well. I never did anchoring. I was right out of school. So one year out of college um, was when I went to ESPN. And yeah, the Scholastic Sports America, I looked 11 years old, Nick, so I wasn't going to get to be put on Sports Center. I thought when they called me Sports Center, no, no, high school sports show, which was a startup, exciting, first of its kind. Uh, Emmett Smith was the very first football player we ever profiled in episode one of the series. Yeah. Um, so I got to be friends with him, all kinds of athletes like Lance Armstrong, you know, became friends for life based on meeting him when he was in Plano, Texas as a triathlete. So it was, it was neat. It also taught me how to work hard, how to do a lot of different things. It, it applied a lot of the lessons that I try to impart on young people who want to get into this business, be versatile, be open, and then listen to your gut, man. I mean, yeah, I was told don't do that bad idea. Read scores at a local market, get your resume tape, repeat, repeat, repeat to get to a bigger market. And it brings up another thing that I've talked about, too. I'm not sure if this is a lesson that you ever tried to, to deliver, but it's not important to figure out early on what exactly you want to do. Mm. Don't don't put that pressure on yourself. It's unrealistic. Try to figure out what you don't want your life to look like. That, to me, is more important at a young age. And I figured out that I did not want to be a sportscaster confined to just reading scores every night in the local news for four or five minutes. Not to demean that job. A lot of people love it. It's very stable compared to a lot of other jobs in the business. And I'm not talking it down. It just wasn't right for me. And I saw that very early on, that I wanted to do different kinds of things. I wanted to be involved in live event coverage or storytelling in a different way. And, and this is what, you know, Scholastic Sports sort of allowed me to do. These were seven-minute long-form features. Here's a kid at school with a cameraman and a field producer. Where do you want to go in the country? You get this giant book of stories that parents sent in. Hey, here's, my kid is talented. My kid's got good grades. Come talk, to, come talk to us. And we would get these ideas as the show evolved, bombarded with them. We would just sit there and go, you know what? Let's go to San Diego. Uh, let's go to Seattle. And sometimes you go to Peoria too, but you, you know, it was, it was an amazing opportunity to sort of have the freedom and the autonomy. Our office was in a little trailer. We weren't even in ESPN's building. ESPN, by the way, had two buildings back then. Now it's about 20. And we were in a trailer outside of the building. That was the office of this show. So I would, you know, live out there. You venture into the main newsroom and there's Chris Berman and you know, Bob Lee and the, the, the legends of ESPN at that time. And who is this kid in a T-shirt? And what is what does he think he's doing here? It was hazing, but, 
it helps you grow too. But that was just, I didn't care about any of that, the trappings of the job or, or, you know, money. It was just about getting experience and growing. And after doing that for two years, some other opportunities came along, like getting into college football as a silent reporter and a reporter for game day. So um, that was a great launching pad. And my message is, listen to your gut, man. You know what's best for you, or you, if you don't, you're going to learn to. I mean, you make mistakes, you learn. But I think it's, then, then you own your own mistakes. If you listen to people's advice and do mm-hmm. what they tell you to do, especially in something like this, Nick, this, this business, which is changing, evolving, you know what? I think you can, you can end up in a place where you don't want to be doing stuff you don't want to do. And you're going to lose that, that flame of the passion that you had for the job. So yeah. whatever way people need to calm themselves, find the stillness, tune out the static. That's the only way I think your, your gut comes through. Yeah. And I'll say this, I, I've made some bad decisions in real estate, in stocks, thankfully not in, not in a marriage, made a great decision there. But my career batting average in terms of listening to my gut, when I'm lucky enough to have different opportunities, options, I don't regret one single decision I made because it's been for the right reasons. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's really key and and being able to own your own mistakes if you do make a mistake. And then I really liked what you said earlier on in regards to you don't like it's it's you don't have to know what you want to do long term. Like it's it's really important to know what you don't want to do. And I actually can I can relate to that on a on a very high level because I studied uh, finance and insurance in college. So I thought like that's probably what I what I'm going to go do. But I started doing fitness training in college as well. And that's when I was like. I love this thing and I, and I kind of want to go do it long term, but I was like, I don't really know what it's going to look like long term. So I'm going to go do this first. And so this is what I should do. And then I, I started that. And right away I was like, wait, why am I wasting time doing something? I know I don't want to do long term when I could just be figuring out what I do want to do long term right now. And I don't I have to know what it's going to really look overrated, like. Man. I, I think the idea of long term is so overrated. I do think that we're, 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 almost taught from birth to focus on the future to do now will get will get you ready and 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 everything we do we walk around in preparation as opposed to just being in the moment and and figuring out what can i do better today that'll prepare me for the future but i'm not thinking about that so when you're when you're in high school all you're doing is preparing for college right that was that's where they drill into your head when you're in college you're preparing for the real world. Yeah. And a lot of times. And in the real world, you're preparing for retirement. Yeah. We're all, yeah. We're always preparing for something that's next. Yeah. And then, yeah, then you prepare to retire. Then you prepare to die. Yeah. Why not just be present, be in the moment and focus on what you're doing every day to get better. I know you believe in this, you know, consistent, relentless, incremental improvement. That's what it is. Don't sit there and stress about the future, right? The future is unknowable. It's uncontrollable. Control is largely an illusion. Not to get too deep early. I'm sure we'll go places with this conversation. (laughs) But I I really do. I do believe that we want to feel like we have control. No, no, we don't. We don't. You have control over how you behave. I I believe you have control over what you think. You, You should be able to control your thoughts and, and hopefully, to a certain degree, control your feelings. 
but you can certainly control your habits and your behavior and your work ethic and your energy and things like that. And those are always controllable. Those are what you count on. Do not, young people, listen to this, do not freak out and stress about the future. Mm -hmm. Your life will go by way too fast and you're going to have regrets that you missed opportunities if that's where you put your mind all the time. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that you said in there is you can control your energy. And to me, it comes down to when you think about how do we actually not worry about the future? To me, you're going to give energy to something. It's you're going to give energy to what does the future look like? Or you're going to give energy to like, how do I be successful today? And to me, it's like, just try to channel as much energy to being present. And how can I be successful today? And then worry about tomorrow when tomorrow's going to come. Um, so yeah, I, think I know you I enjoy your content. I know that's the message you drive home. There's very few things that are more important to express to people. And I know it doesn't feel like sometimes in this, our current condition when there's nothing but time and inactivity is driving people crazy and boredom and the feeling of helplessness and anxiety, all that kind of stuff. That, that message is sort of needed now more than ever because even though the present feels sometimes claustrophobic or restrictive or frustrating, it's no less important. To, yeah. to focus on exactly what you can do today to get better and how to use the time and where, where to put your energy. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, I want to make the, a little bit of a transition into the college game day stuff. So uh, you got there in 86, a couple years with Scholastic Sports America, another couple years as kind of a sideline reporter with college football. And then in, in 1990, college is when you start a college game day. But like you had talked about, ESPN had only been around for seven years, essentially, before you got there. And I think a lot of young people, including me, didn't re don't really realize how far College Game Day has come since the beginning um, from being inside and, and not being on the road. And honestly, it sounds like your experience with Classic Sports America and the creativity that that job and that role allowed you, allowed you to really flourish with Game Day and, and give you a lot of the creativity with that moving forward. But question I want to ask you is, what was y'all's original vision for game day going into it in 1990. <laughs> Man, I don't even know if there was a vision. <laughs> if, if, if game day is now a Walmart, think about that. Yeah. What it was in 1990 was a, a, a mom and pop grocery store wow. on the corner. Okay. It was a show nobody watched. It was a show that led into football games at noon Eastern that nobody watched. It was a half hour long. It was in the studio it was about three years old when I, when I got the gig. So it seems like, wow, you, you know, college game day and you were 27. Yeah. But nobody wanted to host college game day. Yeah. <laughs> it was not desirable, man. So I did, I wanted to host it the, the year before the host of the show had to suddenly leave. His wife was giving birth. I get a call on Friday, get in here. We got a meeting. You're going to host game day tomorrow. And I had done features for the show and I had done sidelines. So I was in the sport. I had not done a lot of, uh, anchoring at that point at ESPN hadn't done yet sports center things like that but okay what are you gonna do you, you, opportunity knocks you don't say no so I went in there I never forget this um some in your audience are not gonna have any idea who Bino Cook was because it's a very crusty old broadcaster who'd been around for a long time he's part of that game day as one of the pundits and he 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 sat there in this meeting before my first show as a fill-in and he looked Fowler Look at you down there. This, this is how we talk. Look at you down there. You're shitting your pants. You have no idea. You're not ready for this. You're not going to sleep tonight. 
you know, and everybody's laughing and I, eh, I'm laughing along. That was his, you know, that was their, again, that was their hazing. That was their indoctrination. Right. So I did, he was wrong. I did sleep. I got up. I did just fine. No pants for shit. It went good. And then the next year when the job came open, I was the host. Uh, but that, that audition there, if I'd flunked it, different path in life. So, you know, you know, the old saying, you know, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I had my opportunity. Fortunately, I was prepared enough and pulled off the performance to make myself look like a guy who could host the show. And the next year I did. But it took about three years to get game day on the road. And those early years, we're just a studio show went from 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, finally, we convinced them to take this thing on the road one time in 1993 when Florida State and Notre Dame played a one versus two game in South Bend. We didn't know what we were doing. We plopped the desk down in the lobby of the basketball arena, covered the pep rally the night before, which is a big deal at Notre Dame, and then did this show with a bunch of people standing behind a velvet rope, but right there, that close to us, wondering, what the hell? What's going on? What's going on? Huh? And we, we kind of got through it, but knew we had something. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year, we began to go on the road more and more and more, and the show totally changed. So we didn't have that vision when we started, but we saw along the way those lightning bolt moments where, ha, okay, this is what this could be. And man, is this fun, first of all. Like we're thinking yeah. more, what's better than being on the scene of the biggest games? I didn't have to call the game or I didn't get to call the game, depending how you look at it. I wasn't ready to call the game professionally. <laughs> right. But I got to go stand on the sidelines and watch ringside all these epic games, including the championship games. And so that, that was what it was about. This is enjoyable. This is fun. And then the company sort of you know, realized, oh, okay, this is also really lucrative. We're making a lot of money with this show. Sponsors want to jump on board with this. And the energy of the crowd behind the set became a character in the show and yeah. became what set the show apart from everything else. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've probably been to, geez, five, six, seven, eight college game days myself. And the energy is, is, uh, is parallel to, to nothing. You, really, you, ever, you, were, you were in the crowd standing out there in the back, or did you have any special uh, accesses? No, 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 no ever uh, special access. But yeah, I've been to, I've been to a number of them. Um, but yeah, oh yeah, it's a ton of fun. Ton of fun. Um, one of the things, one of the, and it's funny because I, I didn't write it down. It just, it just struck with me. It, it struck a chord with me so hard when I think it was on like one of your Instagram stories or one of your videos that you talked about in regards to like preparation. You were talking about preparing for, uh, maybe a game or preparing for game day, just preparation in general and how important it is. And you said that you can't over-prepare, but you can overuse your preparation. And that, to me, really resonated with me in regards to like doing interviews because sometimes if I overuse my preparation, I'm too focused on the questions that I wanted to ask rather than the conversation that we're actually having. But I just kind of want you to riff a little bit on the importance of preparation and what it kind of looked like with college game day, because I'm sure it evolved over the years, but once you got to so many games, a lot of different interviews, so many different kids' names, their high schools, where they're from, and all these kinds of things, like what did preparation mean to you and what did it kind of look like before a game day? We're gonna take a brief pause in the interview really quickly because if you're somebody who is looking to achieve a fitness goal or maybe you lack motivation to get into the gym, you lack some structure in your, in your weekly 
routine or maybe you've been wanting to get back into the fitness game and get back to maybe your weight loss goal or whatever goal it is and you're not really quite sure how. If that sounds like you, my 10-week program is for you because I help everybody set a very specific goal. Then we create a very specific strategy of the two or the three things that we need to do every single week that we believe are going to make us successful with our overall goal. And that'll help you execute and I'll help you hold you accountable every single week. So you do the things that you kind of know you should be doing, but you're, you're not quite doing them right now. And that's what I've done with hundreds of people over the past 365 days, over the past a little over a year. And I want you to make sure that you are part of it as well. And enough for me, I want you to hear from the people who have done it in the past, what they've got out of it and, and why they did it in the first place. So here you go. I cannot say enough good things about Nick's 10 week program. I have always been somebody who has worked out but never really had a fitness goal. If anything I really wanted to achieve, it was more so just to stay in shape. And Nick does a great job of helping you not only define the goal, but also realize what steps you need to take to get there. Tomorrow, as of my weigh-in week nine, I hit my goal of losing 25 pounds in 10 weeks. Just the whole methodology of the program with it being one big goal, followed by some smaller goals to help me reach that big goal and then the weekly commitments to help me reach those smaller goals. During these times, it's helped strengthen my mental health and strengthen my focus and really made sure to hold me accountable to my goals. I'm so happy that I was able to hit the goal and uh, so much so that I decided to do another 10 weeks with Nick. I would recommend it to anybody, no matter what your goals are, if it's weight loss, if it's running a shorter mile, if it's anything you would like to achieve, I think that this program gives you the tools to set yourself up for success. But one of the biggest benefits for me, and the biggest takeaway I had, was one I wasn't necessarily set out to improve upon, and that was building more self-confidence and really instilling self-accountability. The program was great. Um, I'm doing it again a second time to continue my weight loss, and I just can't recommend it enough. So again, guys, if you lack motivation, if you lack structure, if you want to get back into your fitness game, but you're not really sure how, then I want you to make sure you go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs to learn more. For now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I mean, I think that every single person you talk to who's successful, regardless of what field they're in, would talk about preparation if they're being honest. No one gets to where they want to go without preparation. It doesn't matter what you do. This is my, I'm, I'm holding up the notes for a, a podcast interview I'm doing later today. I've known the guest 25 years, right? I've known yeah. Eddie George, Heisman winner, NFL star for 25 years. But I got pages of notes like this because that's what you do. You prepare, you think about different ways to say something, different directions to take the conversation. You don't rely on the fact that you think you know this person. You know, I was talking to Matthew McConaughey on, on my podcast. People think of McConaughey as being this freewheeling, instinctive actor. You know, he doesn't put a lot of thought into it. He just riffs. He did when he started, but then he got burned. And there's a story he tells, I mean, a really humiliating experience where he thought he could wing it. He came in unprepared and embarrassed himself and said, never again. Um, and I talked to comedians, musicians, actors, obviously broadcasters, preparation. Laurence Olivier, the, arguably the greatest actor ever, certainly on stage, said that you have to have the humility to prepare 
then the confidence to perform. Because grinding away and preparing is not romantic. It's not always that exciting. It's getting in there in the trenches, but it's essential. And if you put the preparation in, you should have the confidence to do the job. I, I, I tell kids preparation is confidence. Without the first, you can't have the second. And I'm talking about at this stage of my career, 30 years doing this, I can fake it, but I know I'm faking it. And I know that deep down that doesn't feel right to me. And also I know there are customers savvy enough to know when you're bluffing your way through something that you didn't really prepare for as you should have. So that's controllable, right? That's one of the things we can always control. You can control yeah. your focus and your energy and where you put your mind. So um, yes, you know, preparation is essential. You learn how to prepare more efficiently over time. I don't mean more hours of prep is better, not right. necessarily. And you, preparation, as you know, is multifaceted. Like you, you might, if you're going to teach a class, you're going to give uh, something where you have to be tuned in and aware and have lots of mental energy, but it's also a performance, right? Maybe the best thing is not to look at your notes for an extra half hour. Maybe it's to go for a walk, yeah. get a workout in, clear your mind. I like to meditate. It's whatever gets you in the proper frame of mind when the light goes on. Because you don't get paid for your preparation or your rehearsal, right? right? It's all what goes into the actual broadcast. When the lights are on in our life, whatever we do, that's what you're expected to perform at your best. But you got to get ready for it. But yeah. just because you have good preparation also doesn't guarantee anything. You have to right. bring that second piece to it. You have to have the confidence and just execute in the moment. Because I, there's been games that really prepared well for but the call was shitty. I just didn't, I didn't rise to the moment. I wasn't tuned in. I maybe had too much information in my head and I didn't, I didn't find that, that place of um, relaxed intensity mm. is what I call it. And I, when I've said that phrase to people, they, they nod their head, whether, yeah. whether they're playing music live or at, it's intensity for sure, but it doesn't feel intense to others. It feels relaxed. And it takes a long time sometimes to arrive at that. If people, it's sort of our version of being in the zone. Yeah. Right? Well, I think, like you said, everybody's preparation can look a little bit different and it can be multifaceted. I think one of the big things is you have to be self-aware about your preparation. And if something went really well, if you call it a really good game, you have to t have the savvy to go back and be like, okay, how did I prepare for this? What worked this time around? And maybe I should replicate that the next time around, or if you were really nervous and you didn't feel like it went well, then maybe I needed to have that quiet time beforehand. Maybe I needed to meditate. Maybe I needed to go on a walk or whatever it was. So I think self-awareness around how your preparation allows you to perform or not perform is key as well. Totally. How you're feeling that moment. First of all, we could talk for a day about self-awareness. It yeah. all starts with that. If you're not aware of yourself and, and the vibes around you, 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 nothing, Nothing comes from it. I mean, it's, again, I say leadership starts with awareness. You can't be a good leader. You can't expect people to listen to your message and follow you. Say so if you're not aware of them, keenly aware of them, and only from that place can you get the compassion and the empathy and the understanding and the wisdom that you need to lead. And 
because I, I read a good quote. You know, management is about doing policies, decisions. Leadership is about being. It's how you are, how you make people feel. And I think that that all starts with awareness. So what you what you said about just being being aware of what brings out the best in yourself and what doesn't. Like I, I did a podcast interview yesterday. I was stressed about something. Nothing to do with the interview. I was just, it just it was one of those days where shit was just clouding into my mind. It was not going to help me do what we're doing right now. So I went out for a walk. It was a little chilly. I went down by the Hudson River and I, I walked around and I just completely cleared my mind, was present, looked at the river, looked at the the sun shining up the buildings and just focused in on things that were in front of me and cleared my mind. And also I did my, my Wim Hof deep breathing exercises, which are, I use to, to kind of meditate and regulate. And, and so those two things got me in the frame of mind that the conversation went well, had I not been aware that that's what I should do. If I'd sat there and looked at my notes and been a grinder right up until the time the interview started, I don't think it would have gone as well, but, it, but you have to, you have to know yourself well enough. Right. And I think this is such an important topic. So I want to go a little bit deeper into something that I've thought about in regards to learning from your winning. Like everybody talks about learning from your losses and learning from your failures is super important, which it is. But I also think like learning from your winning is just as important, if not more important, because the the time that I had this like, like light bulb moment is when I start thinking the Patriots win every single year. Alabama wins every single year. These these teams that win every single year. And my thought was like, I think they're just really self-aware as to what made them successful, that they know what they need to replicate. Or maybe obviously there's not the same, it's not the same every single year. There's tweaks that need to be made every single year. But to me, do you feel like that's part of why Nick Saban and Alabama win every single year and why dynasties happen is because teams are really aware of what makes them be successful and then they kind of try to replicate it? 1000% and they don't deviate from it. They, they know what the plan is. They know what works and they have the discipline to continue to do it. I mean, Nick would tell you that you're also, you're defying human nature in some ways, which is hard to do. We're all wired a certain way. When we have success, we get a little happy, a little satisfied. We dial back. We mm-hmm. believe in our head. We're telling ourselves you've done this. And then you start to think about how to cut corners. That's the dangerous part. That's what he works against. You know, Saban, we've had conversations about tennis because he's fascinated with players like Federer and Nadal and Djokovic and Serena who achieved so much. They're the most accomplished, yet they also appear to be the hungriest. They seem to want it more, even at their stage of their career, than people who've never had it even once. And that's what Nick was tuning in on. How do you keep players who've achieved a lot hungry and motivated? And you know, I mean, his method is not what, what, what I would like to do as a human because I like to enjoy my success. You said you know, celebrating success, cherishing it, let, allowing yourself to feel something more than just momentary satisfaction for a success when a loss is devastating. Think about going through life where you're gutted by your losses, but merely satisfied yeah. by your wins. That's not any fun. There's, no. I, there's a, Bill Snyder, there's a million coaches. We could Probably most coaches are like that. But now the, some of them are learning to celebrate the wins, to allow themselves the enjoyment of the moment 
without shutting down and, and fearing that if I celebrate this, it means I'm less likely to succeed the next time. No, no, no. You can't let that. You can't be thinking Wednesday about the win on Saturday. You got another game. Of course not. But in the moment, allow ourselves the freedom to just celebrate when things have gone well and we've done something we're proud of. Yeah, there's definitely some sort of balance balance in there that everybody's got to find that that works for themselves. Um, one of the things that I've found fasc- fascinating is you've called game day under some pretty extreme circumstances after like emotional things that happened in the country. Virginia Tech, for example, when there was a shooting there, you, you had a game day um, after that, uh, then after 9-11, then after the Penn State scandal and all these things. What is it like to try to create a positive, energetic atmosphere? Also try to catch the emotion of the moment. What's kind of the balance there to make sure you do that appropriately as like a public figure calling something to try to catch the, the kind of the, the, the saddened moment, but also try to create positivity? It's a good question. It's complicated. I don't think you try to create positive energy. I think your responsibility is to document what's going on. Sometimes the energy is poignant. Sometimes it's respectful. Um, some of the shows you mentioned, um, it was pretty. It was pretty sad and mournful at times. But you document that, and you find a way in, in, a, in a two or three hour pregame show that's not going to be one note and one emotion for for that long. You you must pivot. You must transition and and reflect what's going on other places around the country. Um, but but the, the game day shows that that captured those different kinds of emotions do stick in my memory more than a lot of the routine ones where it was celebratory. Hey, it's a big game. World's on the planet right now. Would you want to be then here doing this? I mean, that was the prevailing emotion at a lot of game day shows. But there were times where that wasn't the mood that wasn't supposed to be the mood. And we felt the responsibility to get that right. And just by just be a human being in the moment and be aware, goes back to awareness and prepare. We prepared a lot, Nick, for the show at Virginia Tech, which is the best example of that. It was the first time the university had come together as a family since the shootings to do something other than mourn. And it was the the following, the shootings were in the spring. This was the following football season. The campus was back together and it was the opening game. It wasn't a big game per se. The opponent didn't even matter. But game they wanted to be there to document it and wanted to do it right. We had a very good relationship with the campus of Virginia Tech. I had, I think, a very strong understanding of what that place was about, what it was feeling, why a tragedy at that particular place felt different than had it happened somewhere else. And so we set out to construct this pregame show that would reflect all of that as best we could and felt a real obligation to do it right and to do them proud knowing that at the end of the show, they're going to kick a game off. So you got to go from, they're coming together and this is how powerful this is. And this is why this is important. And then by the end of the show, it's football. So you make that journey. We, we walked um, a camera through the long tunnel into Lane Stadium, very dark, walking out into the lightness. That's how we came on the air. Obviously the metaphor is, is clear. And I think that by the time I, I'd finished with this copy, and talked about the Hokie Nation, drawing strength from each other, being back together to celebrate 
something, to, to not let their campus be defined by a hideous act from one individual, but by what they wanted to define it as. They, they were going crazy. The, the, the energy had completely shifted. I get a little emotional just thinking about it because I'm very proud of what we did. And I think we were able to do that a few times in game day, whether it was at the service academy, um, post-September 11th, there were other examples of that. But for me, that Virginia Tech show will always stick out. And we continue to get people who are alums of that school or fans of the program many years later come up and say how appreciative they are. And there's no better feeling than that. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool to be able to harness the emotion of the moment in a way that uplifts the people that you that you want to uplift. So I think that's uh, really cool and really special. Um, but I, I think one of the things that you said too is like be a human in the moment. Don't I think sometimes people might be able might going into that a situation like that might overthink how am I supposed to react in this? But just be a human in the moment and just kind of feel what everybody else is feeling. One of the, when we brought, brought game day on the, on the air, I never scripted it because of, just because of what you said. I wanted to be able to feel what was authentic right there. So we're at LSU and they're playing Florida and it's October. I apologize. There apparently is a minor construction project. This is part of, <laughs> this is part of New York apartment living, but I, oh, good. I don't know if the pounding is going to continue. We'll just have to power through it. Sorry. Yeah, that's all good. Um, no, I think that it, sometimes it, it's, it is just a pure celebration. Sometimes it's like, we have arrived. We're in the big time. Sometimes it's like, we got to pay them back. We've waited all year for this opportunity, whatever it is, you can feel it in, in the crowd. When you walk around, you, you're on campus for a couple of days, you're out there. I never wrote down what I wanted to say. When we came on the air for game day. You know, some 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 parts of the show you knew on Wednesday, Thursday, what you might want to say about this particular game, or you let into a feature, and you want the director to know kind of where I'm going with this. So that would be written on a card. The beginning of the show was was generally just if if, if I scribbled something down, it was on my my format in a pen just before we came on the air, because you want to be a human in the moment, and and but again, you you get to that place only through experience and preparation and being confident enough that the words will come to you if you just let them. Yeah. And if you get freaked out, I don't, I, I don't know what I'm going to say. I have nothing to say. I better, I, I got to script all this out. So they have a security blanket and, and I don't want to do this tightrope act because I might screw up ultimately in any job, whatever it is um, you have to progress from fearing a mistake, just letting it rip and making it about being as excellent as you can be without fear of failure. I remember there's a, there was like a turning point moment. There was a real in a place in my career where I went from fearing mistakes to just performing it. You know, it was doing sports center night after night after night. And you, you finally get to a point where, geez, Check off that segment. Didn't mispronounce anything there. Didn't flub a line. Got through that segment. Now let's get, let's go to the next segment. I mean, that's part of anything we learn, you know, to do. Yeah. But you get you got to get beyond that. You can only really be good at this this job once you forget about fearing mistakes and just let it go. Yeah, and you can bring that relaxed intensity, like you mentioned earlier. Um, but two more quick questions. Two more quick questions. I want to make sure I get you out of here on time. Um, I'm I'm just very curious about this. Like, 
obviously game day is live television and 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 play by play announcing is live television and some crazy things can happen especially on game day with Corso dropping an f bomb and you told a story in one of your podcasts about right before you guys go live in Oklahoma State the cowboy shoots off guns and there's like plenty of just kind of things that catch you off guard probably on game day and, and maybe by play by play announcing and I think it's really important for any of us when we're when we might be caught off guard that we don't react but we respond somewhat intelligently to the situation so I want you just a quick couple minutes to make sure I get you out of here on time how do you have the the cool the coolness and the confidence and the calmness to be able to respond rather than like frantically react if you will when some of those unpredictable things might happen um yeah well I think it, it does come from experience there's sometimes there's no substitute for just having done it for a while and and trusting yourself in the moment way more things can happen describing a live event than a pregame show. I mean, game day had its moments, but every time you step to the mic in a tennis match, when you think you've seen everything, you have not. Yeah. Pretty soon, Serena Williams is being given a penalty because her coach may or may have said something. Arthur Ashe Stadium is melting down. She's smashing a racket. She's getting defaulted. And now Naomi Osaka is receiving a trophy and a huge moment for her life with the crowd booing. You know, any they're playing, they're playing as we record this, they're playing tonight, by the way. So anything can happen there. Anything can happen on a football field. So it, it is, it's, again, it's just having awareness. I think if you are in a, a, a place of relaxed intensity, you're observing keenly. You might not think there's as much observation in calling a tennis match as a football game, you know, two people versus 22 people. Um, but when I'm calling a tennis match, I'm literally watching everything that's going on. The spin of the ball in every shot, facial expressions. You, then, then you're, you're, you're looking at your stats and your notes. And there's a, it's, it's complete focus and immersion. So that when something happens in front of you, um, hopefully, yeah, you know, listen, I mean, I'm not saying you couldn't lose your cool. Any, you know, I, I, but I go into these things. Like I'm, I'm telling you, I go into these things thinking about, what if there's an attack in the stadium? What if something awful happens? I mean, I, I show up at Wimbledon knowing the history of terrorism in Britain. Okay. When I hosted the world cup, I spent, it was about nine, 10 months of preparation. A lot of it was on the what ifs. Well, we, we, I mentioned this in our production meetings. Anybody can prepare for the expected outcome. It's getting ready for the what ifs. What if Serena loses this match? What if Alabama gets blown out by Clemson in the championship game? Nobody thought that was possible. You know, it, it it's the and then then there are the just the what you know. I don't spend a lot of energy thinking about what if there's a tragedy, but I've thought about it in the past. I have that well of information so that you can step up when when odd things happen. You know, and you you know, you can unfortunately be presented with a tragedy on the football field. You know, players not moving. And many, many people have said the wrong thing or said it in the wrong way and been insensitive um, or, or gotten too emotional. I mean, so it's, it's trusting yourself. It comes with experience, but it's also thinking about it in advance so that you're not completely caught off guard. You, you, so anytime you go into something, and I think that this could apply to things far beyond calling sports games, you know, think about the what ifs. Not, yeah. not, not dwell on it, not obsess on it, 
but put some thought on it so that if it happens, it's not going to be, oh my God, I never would have imagined that. You know, I thought about it for a minute and here's what, here's why I was ready for that. You know? Yeah. No, I've, I've um, interviewed an Air Force fighter pilot a year and a half ago. And one of the things that was huge in their preparation is preparing for what could go wrong, preparing for the contingency so that they, if it does go wrong, then they know how they can quickly respond. And that's and real that's, world stuff. That, that's, that's way different than calling a tennis match. I, mean, I hope those guys are thinking about the what ifs. <laughs> but like you said, it's applicable to, uh, to a lot of different things. I really do but, think it is, yeah. But uh, before I ask the last question here, uh, Chris, real quick, I want to acknowledge you for being able to trust your gut one back when you were 20 or so when you made the jump over to uh, made the jump over to ESPN to be able to trust your gut and then I think that you thought you know you thought you were going to be maybe a sports center anchor right away but being able to be put in this job where you had so much creativity and and could travel and do different things like that I really do and you learned hard work I really feel like that set you up for success for uh, college game day it prepared you for that and allowed you to help grow college game day to what it is today to that big Walmart like you like you described earlier so I think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I think people should just, you know, face the fears and anxieties you have because that's a healthy way to process them in my experience. Don't pretend they don't exist. Don't pretend you're not scared of some potential opportunity or some completely new path you're going to try to take. That's normal. But reframe it. Reframe it not as something that's going to paralyze you, not as something that's going to stop you from doing it, but something that's going to heighten your senses, get your antenna up and, and ask yourself all the time. This is part of the conversation I had yesterday with a guest. What's the best that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? Probably neither. Probably going to be something in the middle, but we tend to focus sometimes on what's the worst that could happen as unlikely as that is. And that is the source of a lot of people's fear and anxiety about change, about a crossroads, about having to reinvent themselves. I mean, so many people, Probably some people listening right now have had a door closed in their face. They didn't walk out. It It was closed on them. And they are now being forced to make a change, which feels scary. My experience is a lot of the best changes that we make are forced changes. They're not changes we would have made by voluntarily getting out of our comfort zone. We were forced out there. I, I, I could go on. I won't list them, but there have been many examples of that for me where I might have kept going on this comfortable path, but it would have been the wrong thing. Yeah. And, and by having a door closed to me, it ended up forcing me to go somewhere else. So, um, you know, don't fear that. Don't fear that. And, and try to, as hard as it is, as anxious as you are, and, and, and it's real when you don't have money to pay the mortgage or put food on the table. That's real. And I, I'm not in that position. I'm grateful every day for it. But in my view, it doesn't change the equation. It doesn't change the method of dealing with it. You know, take deep breaths, try to take the stress out of it, try to be present in the moment. What can I do today? Don't worry about what might happen in three months or six months. I mean, it's, it's normal to have those, those thoughts. You need to do things today that will help you three months and six months or three days down the line. But don't let that paralyze you because you can't do anything if you're paralyzed. Fear can be a really healthy motivator. If you, if you talk to people who are creative people or people in sports, I mean, that, that kind of fear that they acknowledge and let in and process, but don't let them paral let it paralyze them can be a really positive thing. 
So yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I don't tend to have the answers. I, I these I try not to be preachy. I try not to say you must, you should. I just try to give ideas and say, hey, you know, this has worked for me. Consider this. Try it. Maybe there's something useful, um, which I think is 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 the best possible approach. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the reasons why your content is so easy to watch it and fun to watch because like you said, you're trying to impart like what you've experienced yourself. And I really love the idea of reframe, reframing your fear, but I want to make sure I get you out. Um, you guys need to make sure you go listen to his podcast, Fowler, who you got. I already mentioned uh, some of the guests that I've listened to and some of the guests he's had on. And I know he's just going to continue to have on great guests. Like you said, he's getting ready to interview Eddie George here. Um, you guys make sure you follow him on Instagram as well. One of my favorite follows personally at Chris Fowler and on Twitter at CB Fowler. Um, but last thing real quick, Chris, is I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is both a constant journey and I think it's a unique journey. I think that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is a little bit different than the way that you're going to get closer to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if you could currently do three things to get closer to that best version of Chris Fowler that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? <laughs> I need to give compliments better. <laughs> I need to I need to verbalize the things that I'm thinking. My wife tells me that all the time. She's actually right. I've got to tell you one thing, just because you said that. That's literally I'm. That's literally what I'm doing for Lent. That's literally what I'm doing for Lent. Trying to compliment somebody one time a day. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean being false. I mean, I'm just just remembering to express to others what you're feeling because you know I, I don't I, I practice gratitude, but I don't do it in such a way to put it out loud or, or, or repeat it or write it down. That works great for people. That's not what I do, but as long as you're remembering to be grateful every day and expressing it, whatever works for you is best, but compliments are different because you need to express them. Other people need to hear them to get that nourishment, to understand how you're feeling. So that, that, that is certainly, you know, one thing is to be more expressive and, and, uh, and, and, you know, Say what I'm thinking when it's helpful to the other person. Um, you want you want two more things to be the best version of myself? Yeah, two more quick. I think what you said, I, I do think that it, it being uh, about uh, a direction, not a destination. So I, I, I really embrace fitness. I love it. But there's no goal in mind. I'm not trying to look this way or weigh this much or you know run this fast. That's not what it's about for me. It's, it's just about the experience of first of all, the feeling I get when I'm doing it and, and the idea that I'm, I'm showing up every day and I'm committing and um, having the consistency and the discipline. I mean, uh, fortunately, those two things, consistency and discipline at this point in my life, I'm at 58. You learn a hard, lot of hard lessons and make a lot of mistakes. But at this point, I don't think it's hard for me to have those things. So just remembering that, just continuing to remember it. And also, you know, I'm lucky that I love it. So I, things that things that are healthy that are good for you find find a way to do those that you also like there's a lot of ways to get exercise you don't have to hate what you do if you hate running on a treadmill don't because ultimately you won't stick with it and why why do something that you hate there are other things that can achieve the same thing that you might not hate so that that's it i mean life, life's too short to do things we hate because they're good for us when we can find things we also like that are good for us, because then, then your life's going to be happier. Um, and I think the, you know, 
I, look, I mean, I don't think this, I don't have to transform in certain ways. I just have to constantly remind myself yeah. you know, to be present because it's very easy to slip out of that. And I, I think that, you know, just, you know, gratitude is, is what, what we talked about, but it, it's, it doesn't need to be, I'm grateful for my family or my health. Yes. Those are the basic things that that's what everything starts. But there are small things that I notice that I'm aware of. I'm very grateful for nature. So it might be walking outside and feeling fresh air. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the way that the sun looks when it reflects on the mountain that's across from my house in Colorado or, or on the Hudson River over here or on the side of a building. You just you just take note of that, you know, and and stop, be aware notice and and just you know be grateful for small things because it's it's not just the big things it's it's the small little things that are worth being grateful for that kind of make every day a little bit richer right yeah no doubt no doubt well i'm grateful for your time today and i appreciate being gracious with your time but and three great things there chris um absolute honor to have you on today uh good luck calling serena's match tonight appreciate it you got the great work i enjoy your content as well nick enjoy being with you There you have it, such a special episode with Chris. I hope you all enjoyed that at least as half as much as I did. Be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member. Share it with someone else who is a big college football fan themselves. I promise you they're going to want to hear this one. Chris is an icon when it comes to college football and broadcasting, and he has amazing things to say about life in general as well. Just send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcasts slash Chris Fowler, best you. Also, you want to make sure that you go follow him on Instagram and subscribe to his podcast, Fowler Who You Got. And if you're interested in having a clear path to hit your fitness goal, then go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Remember, long-term is overrated. You don't have to have all the answers right now. Be in the present moment and be successful today and face tomorrow when it comes. Remember to prepare for whatever it is that you do. Prepare for that presentation at work. Prepare for the job interview. Prepare for the meeting with your boss. And prepare not only for the expected, but the unexpected and the what ifs. And lastly, remember that fear and anxiety can be a motivator if you let it. Reframe that fear and anxiety as something that will allow you to grow further in your life and your career. There were some awesome lessons today with Chris. I hope you at least got a nugget of wisdom today that you can apply so that you can get closer and closer to your best you. 